This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Professor Mia Bay, a historian at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll be talking about her latest book, Traveling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance. It was published earlier this year by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. The book examines the last century and a half of travel segregation in the U.S. It's a history of Jim Crow, a history of technology, a history of Black mobility, and a history of Black resistance. There's so much in it. Um, And I'm so excited to be talking to you, Mia. Thank you for joining with me today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, And so, yeah, like I said, I'm very enthusiastic about this book. And so um, let's just get started. Um, i First off, really like to hear how you got into this particular topic and how you decided to write a book about it. Um, there were a couple of different impulses behind it. Um, one thing that got me curious about the history of segregated transportation was working on a biography of Ida B. Wells to tell the truth freely, mm-hmm. um, because Ida B. Wells, who was a was an anti-lynching crusader um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, got her start as an activist after being kicked out of a lady's car um, on a train in the South in the early 1880s. Um, And it was before Jim Crow laws, before official colored cars, but there was a sort of gender division and segregation, which would later become replaced by a racial division so I became curious about that, and it also made me curious about how does the you know how do how how would then segregation move to different forms of transportation? Um, but then also um, around the same time as I was finishing that book, I you know there was also um, the spectacle of what happened after Hurricane Katrina with all the African Americans stranded in New Orleans. So I was also interested in transportation inequalities, the ongoing ones. Um, So it just kind of got me thinking about transportation. And I started to just, initially, I wasn't even sure I was writing a book. I was just kind of poking around trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what happened. Yeah, I was actually curious about that um, from, uh, you know, because you wrote this biography of Ida B. Wells, um, you know, there's that really famous story, the one that you just quickly narrated. And so I was uh, wondering if uh, if that was one of the connections. Um, and so maybe just really broadly to set up our conversation, um, like, can you just tell listeners what traveling Black means? 
Um, traveling black, I think, means having a special, um, distinct, um, and usually very much inferior experience of travel. Um, of um, it meant for being sort of singled out during the segregation era. It often meant being, you know, relegated to a particular place in vehicles uh, such as the back of the bus, the Jim Crow car, um, the colored waiting rooms. Um, but I chose to th- think about, I chose to call it traveling black rather than traveling Jim Crow because um there was forms of segregation that extended well north of the Mason-Dixon line. A lot of hotels did not accept blacks. Um, so a lot of restaurants would not seat African-American um, customers. So p- when people traveled, they, you know, they, they traveled black in the sense that they had to think about their race and where they would be welcome and where they would not be welcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, sorry, just one more almost comprehensive exam like question. Uh, um, I, like, how should an examination of the Black experience of mobility um, shape our understanding of Jim Crow and broader anti Black racism? Um, essentially, this is, uh, you know, like, like uh, the, the why of your book. Um, well, I think it is very central to like uh, the way historians have talked about Jim Crow, talked about what happened in the late 19th century South, um, talked about segregation. Uh, Wood- C. Van Woodward's famous book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, um, is a discussion of sort of when segregation starts um, that argues that you know, it doesn't start right after slavery, that there's this period of time where things are kind of up in the air. Um, And a lot of his examples for this are about travel segregation. Um, uh, The earliest Jim Crow laws um, of of the sort of late 19th century were, uh, you know, laws establishing colored cars. Um, So, it's sort of crucial to understanding segregation. Um, and I think it's crucial to understanding it because um, the the motives to segregate Black travelers um, really give you a, they're kind of a microcosm of what's going on in the nation at the time. Um, the South is redeeming itself. It's trying to return to the racial hierarchy of the pre-Civil War, which means that it cannot have Blacks interacting with whites in public space on equal terms. It especially cannot have middle-class Black travelers riding in first-class railroad cars or um, occupying, you know, you know, luxury hotels. So it is, it is, is a system of imposing racial hierarchy and that's very important. Um, and it's also a system of dealing with some of the changes that are occurring broadly in the nation around urbanization. People are encountering each other, um, you know, often in, in settings where they don't know each other and in some sense, that's making racial hierarchy even more important. Everyone has to kind of be in their place. Um, and, and Blacks in particular have to be assigned a very specific place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that really sets up our conversation um, really nicely. 
Um, I mean, reading your book, it made me realize just how central um, travel segregation was to everything, to the Black experience, to the civil rights movement later on. I mean, all like so many of the really key moments in the civil rights movement are about travel segregation, whether it's, you know, being put on the back of a bus or ordering a sandwich at a, uh, a restaurant at a, um, you know, uh, a bus station. It's it, your book just shows how central travel segregation was to all of this. Um, and you start your book in the 19th century, uh, where, you know, you show how Jim Crow laws were first uh, established. Um, uh, and then again, also how this gender division of travel um, uh, becomes a racial one. Uh, and then finally, it's about Plessy versus Ferguson, um, which is obviously a really, really important uh, case in U.S. history. Um, and uh, it was, of course, about trains and train travel. Um, and so there's so much in this chapter that I would love to hear you talk about. Um, but um, I, I think centering a little bit on Plessy would be useful because it is so important, um, but also because it um, in it, you talk about this distinction between interstate travel and intrastate travel. Um, and so can you share with listeners what Plessy versus Ferguson was, um, what its historical context was, and um, what its ruling actually meant? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson is this, this famous ruling in which the court decides that, um, you know, Blacks can be put in um, segregated spaces, and and it was a railroad case, so um, an African-American can be asked to ride in the colored car, so long as these uh, spaces are, are, you know, separate yet equal. Um, And, you know, it's a case that we remember because it became the case that was sort of the precedent that supported all kinds of segregation, including educational segregation. It's the it's the precedent that was overturned in Brown. Um, but what people are less, I mean, a lot of people don't remember it's a railroad case. And then there's some details around transportation around it um, that, again, are not necessarily, I mean, they're right in the case file, but again, not always widely known. Um, and the most important of which is that it was um, it was a railroad case concerning Homer Plessy, who was riding on a railroad in Louisiana that was traveling within the bounds of Louisiana. And in, conclu- in concluding that he could be segregated, the justices also noted that the, that this um, their verdict did not apply to interstate transportation because interstate transportation. Um, is a matter of interstate commerce, um, and not, and therefore, um, not, it's not, not up to the Supreme court to decide, um, that it's a matter for the, uh, as the constitution decrees, it's something that has to be decided, um, by what would become the interstate commerce commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, like, so historically, um, people, think about its influence as being, uh, including both interstate and interstate, um, and you mm-hmm. show that this is a distinction, but it's be- because of this distinction, because it doesn't cover interstate commerce um, or interstate travel, rather, um, it actually leaves a lot of uncertainty and doubt and ambiguity mm-hmm. in Black travel. 
Absolutely. And this is something that African-Americans were always very aware of. Um, and it, it was one reason why um, African Amer- so many African-Americans challenged, um, one of the many reasons why so many African-Americans challenged travel segregation. Um, it, it was just never clear that it was, it was, it was, it was legal when traveling interstate. So you have African-Americans appearing before the Interstate Commerce Commission starting in the late 19th century. You have a lot of cases. Um, the problem with going to the Interstate Commerce Commission was that for many years, the, the, the Commerce Commission really wouldn't do much, but it did mean that it was something that people could take to court. Um, people could try to devise strategies against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was like both a, a source of um, resistance, but then it was also this source of anxiety. And I think you, you show this throughout the book that um, there, like there's a, a sort of a lack of clarity about, you know, whether they whether um, uh, African-Americans um, could be doing something um, and uh, that not knowing was just existentially really harrowing. You just, you know, you didn't know um, uh, what, uh, you know, what was legal, what was, uh, um, you know, like deemed appropriate in the particular locale. Um, And you have a lot of cases of this sort of, uh, you know, um, not knowing leading to violence, even death. Um, And so just moving forward to uh, the the next chapter and kind of this bigger discussion of the um, the Jim Crow car um, mm-hmm. and uh, you, here you you have just amazing evidence from so many different people and experiences um, but one of the th- quotes that really stuck with me was um, this quote from W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and he was writing, there is not in the world a more disgraceful denial of human brotherhood than the Jim Crow car of the Southern United States. Um, and, you know, you have people like Booker T. Washington, uh, Marcus Garvey, so many people from very different opposing ideologies kind of centering on um, uh, on this, on the Jim Crow car. Um, and so I was wondering if you could share with listeners um, what, black passengers could expect when they were traveling by train? Yes. Um, the, the Jim Crow car kind of became emblematic of, you know, of, of sort of black, the sort of signed black inferiority. And it was because um, every aspect of traveling Jim Crow involved these kind of humiliations or being assigned to some kind of separate quarters. It started before you even got in the train station Um, in in the turn of the century when they were building and rebuilding railroad stations in the South. um, They designed them so that the uh, colored entrance was usually a different place than the main entrance hall. It was often side street and alleyway. Um, African-Americans could sometimes not even walk through the main entrance hall um, and they would go into a colored waiting room, which would be smaller and dingier and often dirtier than the white waiting room. Um, uh, One janitor reported that he was actually instructed to leave the colored waiting room dirtier than the white waiting room to sort of maintain the differential. Um, And then, um, 
the only the only sort of place where the the sort of colored waiting room and the white waiting room were co-joined at all was the ticket window, which often faced out into was which was often between the two rooms and faced out um, each side. But even that was humiliating because by um, by custom dictated in the South that white people were always served first. So black people would stand and wait at their ticket window until there were no white customers, um, which could mean sometimes that they would miss their trains. Um, so, which is where this stuff gets very serious because it just made travel a nightmare. You went to the train station, you weren't sure you would actually get your train or you had to arrive, you know, extra, extra early. Um so that you could eventually buy a ticket. Um, and then once you got on the train, um, Jim Crow cars, you know, uh, came in a variety of designs um, and configurations, um, but they had certain basic things in common. The Jim Crow car was virtually always the oldest car on the train. Uh, it usually rode at the front, right behind the engine. Um, it if depending on the volume of passengers, it would sometimes ha- be like also the luggage car. Uh, it was often also the smoking car. Um, it was also the car where um, if if there were sheriffs traveling with prisoners, be they black or white, they would be put in the Jim Crow car, people who were drunk or rowdy. So it was kind of a catch-all space. Um, and it, it um, And because it had all these different people in it, including the the conductor would often sort of set up shop there. Um, African-Americans didn't have it to themselves. They often had to kind of share it. Um, They often only, and they often only had one restroom, um, which men and women had to share. Um, And then beyond that, there were sort of there were the, there were problems which really surprised me. Which was um, one was just sort of purely techno- technological because they made um, because the Jim Crow cars were always the oldest cars. Over time, um, as railroads began to replace old wooden passenger cars with new all metal ones, um, by the early twentieth century, the Jim Crow car was often also the only wooden car on the train. And in the case of train crashes, which were not uncommon um, in the first half of the 20th century, the Jim Crow car was um, often um, the site of most, if not all, the casualties. There were train crashes in which, you know, um, 70 or 80 percent of the people who died were in the Jim Crow car because what would happen was the all-metal locomotive and the all-metal passenger cars behind the Jim Crow cars would just sort of slam together and crush the wooden car. Yeah, that was that was something that uh, I didn't know, but uh, was was shocked by that. Uh, like this, this was a part of the design. Like this, this, this wasn't. You know, this was like an, uh, a a very easy engineering problem, but um, it, but because of. The, the racism of the day, it was decided that, uh, you know, black lives did not matter. And and just to go back to something else you were saying. Um, so one of the virtues of your book, in my opinion, is just like how you provide this like 
kaleidoscope of um, different black experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and you, you just, you've found so many amazing stories, um, you know, in, both in archives and in uh, newspapers. Um, but one of the things that you, like that I just saw like, over and over again was the waiting um, and like the lineups, whether it was in train stations waiting to buy a ticket or in bus stations waiting to buy a, uh, a bus ticket, um, waiting to get on a bus. Um, and um, sort of the uh, this just this like everyday experience of um, the, the lineup um, being this, you know, key feature of Jim Crow was not something that I had ever uh, um, realized, uh, never read about. Um, but your book really shows yeah, it was something people people really resented, and and it, and it you know it was sometimes just um, I mean not just inconvenient. It actually could keep you from getting somewhere, you know, getting where you were going, especially like during the wartime um, when when public transportation was really overcrowded. Uh, things like the Southern custom, the way buses worked in the South was that. Um, the line between black and white wasn't hard and fast. Instead, whites boarded the bus and then, you know, from the front and then blacks got whatever space was left at the back after all whites had gotten on board. Um, and during, during uh, the war years and during the second world war, um, sometimes blacks would have to wait for days for a, for a bus that was not completely crowded with whites. Um, it was an issue and th- things like this were a special issue for soldiers who could end up being reported as AWOL if they didn't show up back mm-hmm. at training camp or report for duty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, again, it's, it's, uh, it really is one of the, the many virtues of your book. And so, you know, we, we there's this train infrastructure. It has um, sort of, um, Jim Crow really built into it, literally into the material of the Jim Crow car, um, into um, the design of the uh, the, um, the train stations, um, and then along comes the automobile. Uh, and uh, this is like another theme in your book. You you have the introduction of new technologies. Um, you know the automobile, the bus, the airplane, um, and with each one. Uh, African-Americans, um, at least some of them start to see this as almost like liberating them from, you know, the travel segregation of other uh, modes of travel. Uh, and so, uh, and th- this, and this is very much the the case with the car, you know, you can now like drive uh, between, um, you know, two cities rather than uh, this uh, awful experience taking the train. Um, and so I, I, just to start us off, uh, can you share with listeners what um, sort of like a little bit about these uh, hopes that were invested into the car as this uh, sort of like liberatory technology? Absolutely. Um, you know, the car and and later the plane, these were very sort of exciting um, possibilities for African-Americans. They tended to look at each new form of transportation as a potential way to escape Jim Crow. And the automobile seemed particularly promising because it's kind of like a it's a private space, um, you know, where where you you sort of separated off from whites Um and um, at a certain speed, um, black drivers felt like they could not even be identified as black, so that they were they would sort of be able to travel f- freely. This was the hope 
um, at any rate. Um, but the problem with the automobile would turn out to be the fact that, well, you know, well, a car does give us a private space, uh, what sociologists call automobility, the sort of ability to use the car to, to travel distances, um, really requires all kinds of interactions with other people. Um, and non-private spaces, you have to uh, stop for gas, um, you have to get food, you need lodging. Um, and what happened as automobiles became more useful is for long-distance travel, as you began to develop an infrastructure that allowed people to travel by car, uh, that structure became um, segregated or um, at least um, a place where it involved places where even nationally it involved Blacks being subject to discrimination. So Blacks couldn't count on being able to you know, eat in roadside restaurants, stay at roadside hotels in the South. They couldn't e even always be count on being able to buy gas at gas stations. Um, so that um, there was this idea of the automobile as sort of offering everyone the freedom of the open ro road, which is sort of what a lot of early car travelers went looking for, but African-Americans quickly found out that they did not have that freedom, that they actually, that automobiles would offer certain advantages over things like the Jim Crow car. But um, Black drivers always had to plan where they were going and think about where they could stop um, and, you know, hope that they would be able to find places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and just in terms of the experience of these trips, you know, like African-Americans would have to, uh, yeah, like they would have to plan, um, but then uh, they would also just not make pit stops in many places. Um, and so, you know, uh, um, like white families could count on going to the bathroom, for instance, um, but black families uh, could not. Um, and again, there's this, uh, this like, yeah, this other theme in your book, you know, this, like the, with all the different uh, segregation uh, norms in different places. Um, there's this real ambiguity, this uh, this doubt, um, where people just didn't, or African Americans did not know, like where they could stop. They didn't know, uh, you know, what would happen if they did stop. Um, yeah, and then this led to the development of things like travel guides for African Americans, um, such as the Green Book, which has become famous in recent years, but yes. is far from the only travel guide. There were um, it had predecessors, it had competitors. Um, these guides listed places that did welcome black people, sometimes um, um, ran ads for such places. Um, but these guides um, were also often limited in scope or, um, you know, they couldn't be like fully relied upon. I mean, just in the same way, we can't rely on Yelp reviews now, but, yes, but worse yes. because they, they were, you know, updated less yearly at best. Um, and people who use them would note that, you know, sometimes the places that they listed, you know, weren't there or um, turned out, you know, a 
what was what had been a hotel was now a whorehouse. So you had to be, you know, people also had to use other strategies, the most common of which is, you know, before any trip, you called someone who had made that trip fairly recently and talked to them. And people also, African-Americans also traditionally often tried to stay with friends and family um, rather than even try to navigate hotels or restaurants or anything like that which also mm-hmm. made the drives very long because you're kind of triangulating around, you know, where you know people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you have so many cases of uh, African-Americans planning ahead and just not being able to find any hotel or motel to stay in. Um, and, and just to uh, go back to the green book uh, for a minute. Um, so I, I, I was really impressed with the the research that you um, put into this. Uh, like, uh, uh, you show like basically where all this information was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it's like this really interesting case of knowledge production and, uh, um, essentially the, um, uh, author authors were, uh, really counting on black postal workers, mm-hmm. um, because, um, you know, black postal workers, um, would, uh, would have a very strong sense of where like geographically um, uh, blacks could go, where, um, you know, which places would um, uh, um, uh, welcome in or embrace uh, um, uh, black travelers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, there was a sort of tradition that, you know, if you, if you were in a strange town, one of the people you might ask, um, you know, in the North at any rate would be the, the sort of black mailman about like where the, you know, where the black neighborhood was, where the, you know, where the black hotel was. So, um, so Victor Green and his family built upon that and creating the, the green book. Um, they also built upon the networks that had were established by musicians um, before there was any kind of ever sort of, publication like the green book there were lists circulating among musicians about you know places you could stay Mm -hmm. yeah yeah again i I think that um that research and how it was produced is really really valuable um and so the next chapter deals with the bus. Um, and this is a really exciting chapter because as you point out, um, this is something that just, th- this is a story that has not been told. Uh, and historians um, like C. Van Woodward have made a lot of assumptions about um, bus travel and um, this, how the, uh, you know, like the assumption is that Jim, the Jim Crow rules that were governing trains were simply extended onto buses as well. Um, but you show that it was a very different system with a different genealogy. Um, the, the rules were, were very ad hoc. Um, uh, do you want to say a little bit about all this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, the bus story, I really had to piece together um, just from sort of what people said about it. And of course, you know, there was no sort of central system that laid down segregation. So the buses, when they come along, when they fall under, right, I mean, buses sort of started as, um, you know, what was what were called jitneys, um, which was um almost like Uber, but like an individual person with a large car driving around. They early, early on, they competed with the streetcars. And when they began to fall under regulation, um, the, the streetcar sort of competition was regulated out of existence. But what you did have was these intercity buses, um, 
these, um, and, um, you know, they had to, the states had to create special commissions, create special laws around motor vehicles. Uh, once it was established that, um, buses were in fact common carriers, uh, carriers that sort of, um, had like a standard schedule they had to admit everybody but um even that was kind of contested in the south it was in the early days um blacks were not even sometimes allowed on the bus because the sort of tradition of the jitney had been an individual tradition where individual people kind of chose who could ride in their jitney or not ride in their jitney that would change but it all had to be kind of legislated and they also you know, had to make decisions about how people would get on and off the bus because the bus only has one entrance. Um, and then with the bus, as with all forms of transportation, also they, they sort of, you know, where where the segregation takes place is also about where is the most uncomfortable space on the vehicle. So Jim Crow cars rode at the front of the train, but the back of the bus, especially in the early days of buses, where um, they didn't when they didn't really have a lot of springs and there were often seats that were sort of above the wheel in the back the back of the bus was the most uncomfortable place to be um so that became where african americans could travel once buses opened up to them um and it was a whole sort of process of negotiation and um you know it had to be established and then it had to be enforced. Uh, Texas, when they first set up um, their motor, their laws, their motor vehicle commission or and sort of started to regulate buses, they forgot to write in a sort of Jim Crow requirement. And then almost immediately there was this African-American woman who insisted on riding at the front of the bus and they had to write one. So a lot of segregation also sort of comes because it is because African-Americans are trying to travel mm-hmm. on equal terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the stuff on the so-called Jitney craze, um, you know, the, and like the rise mm-hmm. of these um, black owned um, uh, um, Jitney companies was so interesting. Uh, you have like, you know, you, you show almost these, um, you know, like dueling, like white and black o- uh, owned um, like transportation infrastructures. Uh, um, and yeah, that was a really interesting story in its own right, but I'm going to uh, just encourage the readers to pick up your book and, and read about it. And so the final technology that you look at is uh, the airplane. Um, and uh, this is, um, again, a really interesting chapter, um, uh, primarily because I didn't know anything about it, to be honest. Um, uh, but here, what's, what, I, what I found really interesting um, was that um, the most or the biggest source of indignities weren't necessarily like on the plane itself, like, like especially before the 50s, there were, um, that this was a little bit different. But by the time the fifties come around. Um, it's actually the airports themselves. Um, you know, the, the restaurants, the ground transportation, um, uh, that were, uh, yeah, that would, um, that were much more segregated, um, than the, uh, than the the actual act of flying itself. Um, and so this is also the case with the, um, with driving, it's not necessarily driving, it's not being necessarily being on the road, but it kind of like all of these side infrastructures, you know, like the the bathrooms, the restaurants and so on. And so um, can you talk about that specifically about 
um, uh, flying? Yeah, no, I mean, flying is, is really interesting and there is, you know, there's, um, you know, there's never Jim Crow laws mandating segregation by air. Um, but, um, there are a variety of forms of, um, segregation and exclusion that happen early on in fly flying. African-Americans are sort of refused entrance to planes early on and later they're kind of steered into like their own row but as you say the biggest problem is in the airports where in the south especially in a couple places in the midwest they do create segregated spaces um which are you know which are not uh, not entirely consistent um and and they're but, and they're being built like relatively late i mean the sort of golden age of airport construction is like the 40s and 50s so you know as there's as segregation on the ground is sort of being challenged in the courts you you know you have these sort of segregated airports being built they're being built with federal funds the south gets around this by kind of working the budget in the in a way that they don't use the federal funds that are otherwise used to build the airport they'll build the you know restaurant with a different pot of funds um and um this this actually it is again like a lot of this travel segregation it's it's not just a minor inconvenience because what happens in airports is that um often because there are not a lot of black passengers uh they'll have a whites only restaurant and really no facilities where blacks can get food um or you know the sort of facilities for uh like a hotel near the airport will be whites only and there'll be sort of no place to put black travelers and you know during the early days of commercial air you often ended up stuck on the ground because of weather or um, other things. You sometimes ended up stuck overnight. So African-Americans would sort of pay a lot of money to travel by air and often be doing it because they're in a hurry um, or, you know, feeling like it's very important to get somewhere. But they couldn't necessarily count on having a smooth, uninterrupted journey. Um, And if, you know, if, if they had to wait, they couldn't count on being able to eat. And then there was sort of the, they also had trouble with what transportation planners call, you know, the last mile, which is, um, you know, transportation from the airport um, in the South. Cabs cabs were usually for Blacks or Whites, um, and often the cabs that were for Blacks didn't really come out to the airport on a regular basis or the cabs that, and the, and the cabs that airlines would use to like move passengers around did not accept black passengers. So black passengers could get stranded at the airport, um, which was um, a particularly infuriating indignity. If you had sort of bought a airplane ticket to avoid segregation and also get somewhere quickly, and then you just ended up being stranded at the airport. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that's a really essential point that, um, you know, these, these, these aren't minor inconveniences, you know, hunger, being stranded somewhere. Um, like these, these are actually like really like fundamentally bad things to happen to human beings. Um, and, and and obviously this was uh you know the um like a lot of this was the case also with 
um, the uh, the Jim Crow car, like not not being able to uh, um, you know to like get food on the train. You have to pack your water and your food, um, and then the same thing with the buses. And so there's this um, real continuation of this like black experience uh, um, from technology to technology, and and so in in your final chapters you move on to talk um, more explicitly about um, resistance and kind of the, um, the the rise of sort of like the modern civil rights movement. Um, and um, here it's, it's really interesting because again, you know, you show how, uh, I mean, just, like just reading these chapters makes you realize how central travel was um, uh, to um, sparking the modern civil rights movement in a way. Um, you know, you think about um, Rosa, Rosa Parks and the bus boycott in Montgomery, um, you know, the um, one of the organizers of the Selma to Montgomery uh, um, uh, marches was arrested for having tried to eat a, uh, um, at a bus terminal restaurant. Um, and then of course the freedom rides. Um, and so maybe just to start off this conversation or this part of our conversation, um, um, can you talk about how and why travel, um, and travel segregation was so key to the modern civil rights movement? Sure. I mean, it was something I thought about a lot, you know, um, and like why travel is so central. And I think the answer is that travel discrimination is something that every Black American experienced. Um, You know, there was no way you could escape it. Um, African-Americans often did what they could to escape um, other humiliations related to Jim Crow. They, you know, did not eat at restaurants. They avoided, um, you know, theaters. Um, They tried to avoid segregated spaces, but everyone had to take the train or fly or figure out someplace, some way to get from one place to another. And the unpredictability of travel discrimination meant that even people who had no no intention of sort of coming up against it meant that you could sometimes break the rules, end up in trouble, um, or end up, you know, end up in, in one of these sort of horrible journeys where you couldn't eat or didn't find a place to stay. So um, the, the sort of difficulty of even sort of navigating um, a segregated world or a world in which Blacks were excluded or not allowed in certain places meant that a lot of people came up against these rules, had experiences that sort of, that, that you know, ended up with them going to court or ended up with them being thrown in jail, even though they hadn't actually planned to protest. Um, so, so there was so many different ways that you could sort of end up coming up against travel discrimination that I think it became a major issue it was a cross class issue. It was not a form of discrimination that any amount of wealth could sort of allow you to fully escape from. Um, and um, I think that, and, and then also, I mean, one, you know, I think African-American travelers have been kind of understudied because people have the, people have this sort of idea of blacks not traveling that much, you know, and, and Blacks haven't traditionally traveled as tourists as much for a variety of reasons. But, it, but I think what people 
overlook is, of course, the Great Migration. I mean, this is a population in motion over the course of the 20th century. You know, millions of African Americans move north and keep coming back and forth. And then, of course, you have the World War One and World War Two, which also disperses people. So everyone is in, you know, African Americans are moving around a lot and they're navigating these terrible travel conditions. And it, um, you know, it keeps coming up as an issue, perhaps even more than, you know, some civil rights organizations would have liked. The NAACP, which was always strapped for cash at various points, um, you know, kind of um, was reluctant to take on huge campaigns against travel segregation because they felt like education and, you know, things like lynching were more, were sort of more absolutely crucial. And they may have been right, but that did not mean that they didn't keep getting, you know, people asking them about cases and they would encourage, then they, and they would encourage people to kind of do civil suits. Um, so it just, it, there was a momentum behind protesting tra- travel segregation that um, that never let up because there was, you know, it was something that people just could not avoid. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these, these chapters are filled with really beautifully narrated stories of um, the modern civil rights movement. Um, and, uh, you know, you, t- you, you talk about basically the first freedom rides in the 1940s, which um, were called the the journey of reconciliation. Um, and so that's, that's one story that um, I recommend uh, listeners uh, read up on. Um, but then uh, in the, the, the final chapter um, again, so many stories, but one, one story that I think would be um, interesting for um uh, for listeners to maybe hear is the story of the State Department's campaign on Route 40, because as you were just saying, um, there was no escape from uh, these travel segregations, even you know for people for um, uh, you know um, African Americans with wealth, but even you know like African diplomats, uh, foreign dignitaries, and so on, um, uh, they themselves couldn't avoid this, um, and so. Uh, yeah, if, 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 if you'd like, can you share a little bit about this campaign? Sure. Um, in the, in the mid 20th century, this sort of travel segregation finally became something that the federal government really had to take seriously, um, because it was something that did impinge on foreign dignitaries, anyone dark skinned or, or black, um, could end up being segregated um and in the in the 50s when you began to have all these african nations achieving independence and you began to have ambassadors from these nations or other visiting dignitaries um this became a real problem because these people would um live in washington um and then they would travel to new york and to do so they would have to drive along uh what the, the route used to be Route 40, uh, where they would encounter segregation in Delaware and Maryland. Um, and there would be these kind of international incidents, which then, you know, Eisenhower had to apologize for, Kennedy had to apologize for. So um, um, by the time you get to the Kennedy administration and you have um, 
civil rights activists wanting to do something about Route 40 as well. The, the Kennedy administration actually lends support to the Route 40 campaign to desegregate Route 40 to get sort of businesses to voluntarily um, abandon segregation along this route. Um, and it's um, ultimately effective. Um, but it, you know, it, it sort of demonstrates that this is sort of, it, it's sort of becoming a global crisis. Um, it worries uh, the Kennedy administration because they're sort of worried about how um, the Soviet Union will use these stories to try to sway African countries towards communism rather than democracy. Um, and it, it raises all these questions about what direction the world is going and how the U.S. can be a sort of leader for democracy if it continues to allow segregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so its its motivations, like the federal government's motivations for getting involved, um, uh, you know, at that particular time because of all of these international incidents. I mean, to to, to say the least, it's problematic. Um, but the State Department, you know, dispatches officials along uh, along Route Forty to like talk to restaurant owners and lobby local legislators. Um, it's a, a really really fascinating story, and I, I think. We should briefly, I mean, ideally we would have more time, but we're kind of running up uh, against the clock. Um, We should talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because again, travel plays a really big role in um, what the Civil Rights Act covers. Um, And so can you share uh, just a little bit about this? Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that was striking to me in researching the book was just how much work it took to finally achieve travel desegregation, um, you know, there was there was a variety of sort of court cases in the starting in the forties that sort of chipped away at various aspects of, you know, the legal making it clear and clear that the segregation of interstate transportation was not in fact legal, um, but um, you know there was always often the laws were ignored or not enforced. So it's not until 1961 and the freedom rides that you begin to get the government to step in to enforce um, um, allowing blacks equal access to buses, trains, waiting rooms, and so forth. Um, you know, and this is under, under a decree of the Interstate Commerce Commission and also enforced for the first time by the Justice Department. But this does not deal with um, the se- kinds of segregation that African Americans encounter in spaces outside the bus station, such as hotels, roadside restaurants, the kind of spaces that people were encountering on Route 40. Um, and these are the kind of spaces spaces that a lot of people are fighting over in sit-ins, um, just generally in the South. Um, and as the civil rights movement heats up, especially after bombings in Birmingham um, and after JFK's death, um, you finally get to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, in, in which actually does use um, in, um the idea of interstate commerce to sort of outlaw segregation in hotels and restaurants and all these kind of businesses that do commerce across the states in a sort of very broadly defined. Um, And 
there's a long debate over sort of, you know, how to kind of frame this act. And there are some, a lot of people who want them to use the 14th Amendment, but they go with interstate commerce. So one thing you find in the kind of congressional testimony for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is, um, you know, discussion and evidence on the hardships that African-Americans experience while traveling, charts about how long you have to drive without being able to find a hotel, stuff like that. So it's, it's travel is, is really central to um, the way the legislation is written and the way the legislation is defended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, travel is so central uh, and like it makes this almost seem obvious. Like, of course, it's about travel. Like that's that's how it was framed. And so, you know, so the historical portion of your book um, ends uh, in the mid 60s. But in your epilogue, you know, you I mean, you write that there's no need to travel back in time to travel black um, and and you really show how um, racism continues to structure travel for um, black travelers. Um, and so can you share with listeners, like just maybe some of the echoes into the present um, that your story has? Sure. Um, yeah. I really felt like I could not end the book without acknowledging sort of the ways in which this, long and kind of amazing struggle that African Americans that African Americans wage to secure equal access to transportation is kind of a Pyrrhic victory um, in, in ways that we maybe not don't think about that much but are kind of obvious. Um, one of them is that you know in the since the 1960s we have become, more and more of a car country. So um, desegregating the trains, uh, equal access to buses does not mean what people had hoped it would mean in the sense that we don't have very many trains anymore. Um, You know, most have one railroad now um, that doesn't serve a lot of cities and towns. And we we also have relatively scant bus service um, throughout the nation. So, you know, increasingly transportation is about cars and there you have African-Americans at a disadvantage. African-Americans are disproportionately um, more, I mean, they're more likely to not own cars than whites as are Hispanic. So there's a whole group of people that are kind of left out of, um, a, a world in which mobility is really about having a car. And then there's so many ways in which African-American car owners experience discrimination from paying higher prices for cars, paying high, higher prices for insurance, um, um, paying higher prices on the financing for the cars that they do buy. And then of course, um, traffic stops and traffic, um, you know, traffic enforcement, uh, which it continues to be a major and really sort of dangerous point of friction between African-Americans and whites. Um, One of the things the book notes and sort of ending is the extent to which this sort of kind of confrontations that spurred the Black Lives Matter 
movement often sort of started on the streets, often involved traffic stops. So there's ways in which African-Americans still do not travel freely or, or actually have access to sort of equal equal resources when it comes to travel because, um, you know, they, we have a, we, as a society, both at a state and federal level, we put most, most sort of taxpayer money into sort of supporting this sort of car centric infrastructure, which a lot of people of color aren't left entirely out of. Um, And then um, you also have all these sort of inequalities within that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's so much more in the book, and I'm just going to encourage listeners to pick up a, a copy and read it for themselves. Um, but uh, in the the meantime, um, you know, you, you just published this book. It's something that you finished during the pandemic. Um, and so uh, um, it might be a little bit too early, but maybe you could share a little bit about what you're working on right now, what um, readers and listeners um, can expect from you and the eventual future? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I have actually circled back to a project that um, I have been working on for a long time, even longer, even before I started the travel book, um, and I'm actually hoping to finish up in the next year or so. It's a it's a work about African-American ideas about Thomas Jefferson, Um who is much discussed, especially in, um, you know, early African-American literature and antebellum black newspapers. And um, um, I'm just sort of um, writing a book that kind of goes over what African-Americans have to say about Thomas Jefferson and explores why he is a kind of important figure in sort of the black political imaginary, especially um, in the pre-Civil War years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, uh, that sounds super exciting, super timely, um, and I'll be looking forward to to reading it when it comes out. Um, Mia Bay, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I've been speaking with Professor Mia Bay about a recently published book, Traveling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance, and you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.